We turn now in God's word together to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. We continue to go through the book of Matthew together. This is one reason we do so. Because as you go through a book, you come on passages that you might not otherwise choose. That's a good thing. Hear now God's word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. Beloved, as you look around you, you see the family of God. Single and married, widowed and divorced, some with children, some without, some praying for more children. The varied experiences among us as a church family give us pause and remember to show grace, compassion, patience, and love to each other. None of us knows the details of another marriage, another relationship, another situation that another one is in. This text gives us pause. Perhaps you've heard something on this text before, perhaps you haven't. I've never preached on this until today. This is weighty because of the varied situations among us You may have questions here. How does this apply to this? And I'd encourage you to ask another trusted, godly Christian man or woman about this. There's no way we can cover every situation here. Follow up if you think, well, I don't know about that, or I'm not sure about that. Let's have an open dialogue together as we look at what God has for us as a church family in his word on marriage. See, this is first and foremost about marriage, loved ones, not about divorce. Yes, it's there. But we want to look and see 
how we as a church family can come alongside each other and sit down right now and have a question and answer session on marriage. That's kind of what this is. Can you imagine if Jesus gave us that? It'd be great. And that's kind of what we have here today. The details then of the applications we need the Spirit on, right? First, the Pharisees' first question, they're setting a trap. The context is important. Jesus has just been talking about forgiveness. He's left the place where he formerly was, Galilee. He's in Judea. A scene change. Crowds are following him, large crowds. He's healing them. His compassion is abundant here. That's important in this context. And who shows up again in verse 3? The Pharisees. These guys have been coming up and popping up and showing up all over the place, all the way back since Matthew 9 when they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. What's wrong with this guy? He's a glutton. Their opposition to Jesus continues to grow. Jesus is on his way to the cross. They're not there to trust Christ, to listen, to learn, to love, to repent, to obey, or to worship. It's important for us as we come to the word of God to examine our own hearts here. They are there to try to trick him, to trap him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? What's going on here? They are wanting Jesus to weigh in on some of the issues of the day. There are different rabbis with different interpretations of Deuteronomy 24. We'll get there. Jesus, where do you stand on this? May a husband divorce his wife for any reason he may choose? Or is there any cause enough to justify this? See the extremes? What's also going on in the day? John the Baptist is dead. He preached and he called out Herod to repent for Herod's adultery and divorce and his wife's adultery and divorce, which was incestuous and evil and wicked and Herod was killed. Jesus, perhaps, is being set up by them as an opponent of Herod. Herod might take out Jesus like he did John the Baptist. There's all sorts of things in the context here. What does Jesus answer? Do you see this? He doesn't right away answer. He knows their hearts. Let's go back to the beginning, Jesus says. Before the fall, marriage itself, let's talk about that. The Bible brings clarity to the darkness of our culture and our hearts and the wickedness here of these Pharisees. God made them male and female. There are two sexes. Boys and men, God made you to be boys and men. Girls and women, God made you to be girls and women. The Bible does not enfranchise transgender identity. We are either man or woman per the creational design of God. The Bible speaks clearly that attempts to blur these lines of God's given, one's God-given sex is always sinful. Marriage is defined in Eden, Jesus goes back there, and again by Jesus in Matthew 19, it is between one man and one woman. God is honored by only such a marriage. There is no such thing as any other marriage. 
These things are in Scripture. Beloved, Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to, cleave, cling to, stick to his wife. These are words of the covenant. So you leave, you cleave, and then you interweave. Sex is a glorious gift in marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that, it is sin and disaster. We need grace, we need repentance, we need to see with clarity God's word. The vows are for life. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract, not a consumer, not, well, if I find a better model or there's a better idea of something over here, I'll try it out and I get tired of this and I'll go there. No! It's exclusive, it's permanent, it's God's will, given in creation, a good gift for your joy, for your happiness, for God's glory. That children might be born, that a society would function well when this is happening. When it doesn't, it's chaos, it's darkness, we see it all around us. It's God's judgment around us. The two become one flesh, it's a mystery. Not her and me, but we, the we language in marriage. Beloved, you're a team. You're not opposed to each other. What God has joined together, do you see that language? This is not an accident. This is the sovereignty of God. God brought you together. Husband and wife, in his goodness, in his grace. We shouldn't split up marriages. God joined them together, we didn't. This is till death do us part. When we get married, this is the commitment. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. When you made those vows, or some of you may make them soon, you are saying, if I see someone and meet someone who's more attractive, more intelligent, more compatible, whatever that means, right? More, all these things, I am going to be faithful. God's going to give me grace. If my spouse loses their health, loses their job, loses their mind, Alzheimer's, I'm vowing to be faithful. There is weightiness here. We need to feel it and remember it. The first marriage between Adam and Eve didn't remain perfect. There is no perfect marriage. Two sinners say, I do. Because of the fall, we are born sinful and all about me, right? One of our kids plays on a basketball team. At this stage in their second grade development, it's all about me. <laughs> when they dribble the ball, they're not thinking to pass. They're just wanting to shoot, right? Have you seen that before? It kind of makes you chuckle. All about the glory individually. I love his team. I love him. And I, I, I feel that way to my, my own heart. You just want to make the game-winning shot, right? <laughs> Thanks be to God for the wedding of Christ to redeem his sinful bride, the church. The Son of God became man. He kept his vows. He came from heaven to earth to bear the curse of our vow breaking and our sinfulness and the judgment that we deserve. He washed us with his blood when we were unlovely, when we were a whore, when we were the prostitute, when we were adulterous and unfaithful to God. He didn't say, make yourself pretty and come to me. He came to make us beautiful, to clothe us in his righteousness, to present us before the throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing in him. 
Christ is the head, the church is his body. We are his bride, he loves you. Marriage is a picture of that. Christ and his love for the church, we can't redefine this. God made it, God defines it. That's what it's about. The question and answer session ramps up, secondly. Do you notice, have you ever had this experience? I'm sure you and your spouse and your kids all have. You're not listening. It's as if they did not hear what Jesus said here at all. The Pharisees aren't interested in that. They bring it right back to divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's where they want to be. They're coming at this from Deuteronomy 24, which speaks of a man. He's married. His wife is displeasing to her. He writes her a certificate of divorce. He sends her out. She's the wife of another man. He dislikes her or hates her. He writes her a certificate of divorce. She's sent out there. Can she go back to the first husband if the second one dies? Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. You think, whoa, what do you do with that? The Pharisees are looking for loopholes. So they're thinking, okay, What element of the law has primacy? If the husband is not pleased, or if the wife is indecent, or if the certificate is written, what's the ground for divorce? You've got two different schools of rabbis in this day. One, the more conservative school of Shammai said the only ground for divorce is indecency, Deuteronomy 24, which means sexual immorality, fornication. Another, Hillel, 50 BC, another rabbi, Well, hate, Deuteronomy 24, could refer to anything. So if you just are mad with your wife, you hate her, she burned your dinner, she put too much salt in there. These are from their writings. She took her hair down in the street. Someone saw her knees. She said something unkind about her mother-in-law. She can't have children. She's a brawling woman. They hear her voice next door down the street. You find someone prettier. The list goes on and on. That's Hillel. Any of those reasons? Divorce. Divorce is rampant in Jesus' day. It would not be uncommon for a man to go through three, four wives. Do you notice how he's talking to men here, by the way? Because in that culture of the Old Testament, women couldn't get a divorce. You look at Paul, he talks about women. So the short is, it goes both ways. Men and women here. Put both in both places. The Pharisees just wanted to get out of it. They wanted to get out of the adultery command. So they said, well, if I divorce my wife, then I go commit adultery, then I bring her back, I'm not guilty of adultery. Or I could sell her for 24 hours. I could make money, prostitution. This guy takes her, then I take her back. the, The evil here is astounding. Jesus, take a position here. Are you with Shammai? Are you with Hillel? Are you the, you better not divorce at all, except maybe here, or just let her rip? Beloved, the issue is the heart. See that? It's about the hardness of heart. Take a step back. How many divorces still happen because of hardness of heart? Meaning, I refuse to worship God. I refuse to come to worship. I refuse to repent. I refuse to humble myself. 
I refuse to agree that I've sinned here. Pride, hardness of heart. Beloved, think about God. Think about the children. And how many divorces are the children just roadkill? Just forgotten, just scattered, just ignored. Out of the prideness of the heart. Afterwards, someone says, if I could know now what I, know then what I know now, I wish things could have been different. I didn't repent. I didn't soften my heart. The hardness of heart, Jesus says. If people were soft-hearted, there wouldn't be no divorces. Right? Divorce is an issue of worship, is what he's saying. That's foundationally what's happening here. Yes, Moses allowed for it. Your refusal to trust God and love him and worship him underlies this. The Pharisees are misquoting Deuteronomy here. Moses did not command divorce, did he? He allowed it. Beware of those that want to do the same. They'll take a passage, they'll twist it, they'll change it. That's what Satan does. The Pharisees here are acting in many ways as Satan does. They're trying to test and trap Jesus, just like Satan. How do we apply this today? So many details. I've already mentioned this. Four possible camps, and within them, how many different options? One, divorce and remarriage, no matter what. You're not happy. My wife doesn't make me happy anymore, someone says. My husband doesn't make me happy anymore. I'm in love with another person. I feel so good with this other person. I must do it. I will do it. No-fault divorce. A meaningless phrase. The vows have gone. The covenant has gone. That goes on today. That was going on in Jesus' day. That's one particular, very common view. The other is no divorce at all. Divorce is the unforgivable sin. If you divorce, you have a scarlet letter. You are cast out. You are not loved by God. You are not accepted by the church. That maybe is something some have seen. That was going on in the first century. Within these views, some say yes, divorce for biblical reasons, but no remarriage. Others, yes, divorce and yes, remarriage for biblical reasons and variant views within the views. Is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. Is every divorce therefore sinful? No. Kevin DeYoung, you see there, I'm referring and will be quoting from some of what he's saying here. God issued Israel a figurative certificate of divorce because she was unfaithful. Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 3. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. And here's where the gospel comes in. Christ came to win back his whoring, prostitute, adulterous bride. That's us. Sinners. Think of the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary. He was going to divorce her quietly. You might say, well, what about Malachi 2.16? How many have heard that? God hates divorce. Have you heard that? Anybody? I'm looking for some sort of... At face value, it looks like, well, God just hates all divorce. Beloved, I want to encourage us, and this is hard to do, but to reconsider. 
The ESV translation of Malachi 2, which I think is the correct translation, says this. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. It does not say here God hates divorce. Now you might say, whoa. Malachi 2 and Deuteronomy 24 are not contradicting each other. God's word never does that. Moses is talking about how divorce is allowed under certain conditions. Malachi is condemning it except under certain conditions. Is every instance of divorce sinful in God's sight? No. Did Jesus forbid all divorce? No. Does God hate all divorce? No. Is divorce the unforgivable sin? No. God hates the hatred that a man and a woman have for each other when they are going at each other verbally, physically. God hates that. God hates the evil in the heart and in the home when wicked men and wicked women are causing disharmony and disunity. God hates sin. Jesus continues, verse 9. I say to you, do you see who Christ is? The giver of the law, the keeper of the law. He is God in the flesh. He's not going to tear down God's law. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word here is porneia. It's referring to fornication. Two unmarried people involved sexually. That breaks the marriage bond. Divorce is permitted but not required on that ground, as Jesus tells us. Matthew 5, 31 and 32 says the same thing. This applies both to men and women. Mark 10 says the same thing. But there's more to Scripture than just this, isn't it? On this issue. Divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This is a biblical ground for divorce. I quote the Westminster Confession. You can see that on page 6 if you want. The Corinthian church has huge issues with sexual immorality. This stuff is going on all over the place in that day. The question for us is how does this apply? Here's what one person says. By not enslaved, 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle meant that the innocent party is not forever chained to someone who has destroyed the marriage relationship. God has called us to peace. In such cases, here's where you're going to have different opinions within biblically sound churches. Some say in such cases refers to cases of unrepentant abuse in the home. Unrepentant pornography, unrepentant gambling, unrepentant enslavement and addictions to drugs and alcohol, not seeking help, destroying the home. Some say 1 Corinthians 7 shows that those are grounds in certain situations. Every situation has to be looked at individually, pastorally, with the Holy Spirit, with prayer, with crying out to God. When someone breaks their vows to love and cherish, husband or wife, these are forms of abandonment. 
It reminds us of God's compassion for those who have been hurt in marriage. That may be you. We're all sinners and we're sinned against, all of us. But maybe you have been in a marriage where you were horribly hurt or left behind or sinned against. Maybe you've been in a marriage where your husband or wife is enslaved to alcohol or drugs and gambling. They're destroying the home. They're beating you. They're assaulting you. They're doing all sorts of evil against you. God has compassion for those who are sinned against. He has compassion on sinners and brings them to repentance. What about remarriage then? Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 9. When the divorce was not permissible to Young, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. That's what Jesus says. So if you get a divorce, get remarried, it's wrong unless adultery or 1 Corinthians 7, desertion, as we just talked about. If you are illegitimately divorced, the remarriage, DeYoung says, is also illegitimate. That doesn't mean you aren't really divorced and you aren't really remarried. It means it shouldn't have happened. He goes on. In situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is also permissible. The death of a spouse... Sexual immorality, which Matthew 19 is talking about here. When Jesus says, except for marital unfaithfulness, it covers whoever divorces and it covers marriage another. The phrase, is not enslaved in 1 Corinthians 7, implies that the spouse who has been deserted is free to remarry. De Young again. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are but repent and be forgiven of past sin and make amends wherever necessary. It might mean going to your ex-spouse, going to your kids, going to your in-laws or your ex-in-laws, genuinely repenting before the Lord. This is not a small matter for any of us. Application to those married. The biggest problem in my marriage is, how do you fill in the blank? The biggest problem in my marriage is my sinful self-centeredness. How rare that is. When people are going at it, they are not seeing that. They are going at the other. The DNA of sin is selfishness. The battles that you fight with your spouse are ultimately not battles with your spouse. They're your heart. It's a worship issue, loved ones. Let's learn about a goldfish. Doriani. Kids, you see goldfish go around the bowl? Do you think, how boring? How miserable? Scientists have said a goldfish has a memory of about how long? Do you know? Three seconds. So every time they go around the bowl, they see another pirate thing. And it's new. And like, whoa! Another pebble. It's new. Whoa! Another plant. Whoa! A married couple endures years of adjustment and childbearing. They descend into long years of gold fishing. Around and around the bowl. They get bored. It's a sad state. There are a lot of divorces that happen once the kids leave the home. I'm tired of you. I'm bored with you. I'm not attracted to you. I'm out. Oh, God, keep us from that. God, give me a, a freshness. Your mercies are new every morning. This spouse is a gift from your hand. A kiss holding the hand, a hug, reading the Bible together, praying together, repenting together, crying out to God together. 
This is not boring. Some people should never have been married. It was sinful that they got married and it never should have happened. They did so because of pregnancy, because of lust, because of bad reasons. Some people on the other extreme thinking, I don't want to touch this. If I marry someone, what might happen? They might divorce me. They might not be faithful to me. They might not... Beloved, it's a good thing when Christians marry in the Lord, however young or old they are. Don't let paralyzing doubt keep you from this blessing. To the married, guard your marriage. Don't think you are above falling, DeYoung says. Pray together. If you are contemplating divorce, talk to someone. Don't give up. Don't isolate it. Don't let the argument just become internal. Forgive and forbear. Look to Jesus. Look to other Christian couples. Don't give up. To the married, what do you love about your spouse? Why did you get married in the first place? Marriage is about us. It's easy to despair, to grow cold. But we need to recognize the worship issue here. Until God has the proper place in my heart, I will always complain about my spouse. My spouse will never be enough for me. Jesus alone is that spouse that can satisfy your longings now and forevermore. Your spouse is in Christ, and neither are you or I. Don't look at them and think they should be. Yes, they should be more like Christ, all of us. Oh God, help us here. When the gospel assures me that I'm loved by God, forgiven, my sins are washed by the blood of Jesus, secure in Christ. When I receive criticism from my spouse, I'm not crushed. I receive it humbly. When I give criticism, I do it patiently and graciously. Rooted in Christ, established in his love, filled with his spirit, we walk forward in forgiveness. What's the goal in your marriage? Beloved, to help each other become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a prayer on page five. If you haven't prayed with your spouse, if it's grown cold, if you never started or you gave up, take this and pray it out loud together today. Humble yourselves. Cry out to God. May our thoughts be sweetened by love. May our words be seasoned with love. May our actions be a relish and savor of love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Build relationships, men and women, with each other. Remember the spouse of your youth. Remember the blooming of love in your heart. Tend to the garden. Don't let it grow stale. Don't let it grow cold. There are weeds there. There are sins. Pray that God would reignite love and romance in the right way and affection and grace that maybe has died out. The ember might be close to dead. God fan it into flame. May our marriages be a picture of Christ and his love for the church. May they not lie to the world. May they be a glorious picture of the gospel. God help us. Don't deal treacherously with each other. You are one flesh. Repent where you've sinned. You're loved enough by Jesus. You have patience for the journey. The great wedding day when you fall into the arms of Jesus is the day when finally everything will be made right. As you trust him by faith, it's grace-based, it's gospel-empowered. 
It doesn't just happen. When two sinners are filled with the Spirit, God, help us not to be defensive and thin-skinned and argumentative and asserting our way. Help us to overlook offenses and die to personal selfishness. Help us to outserve each other and to love the children and to, to work together, not against each other. Give us humility. Give us death to self. Give us an attitude of honor, not manipulation, not controlling. How do the disciples respond to this? Look at verse 10, third. They're astonished. They're jolted. If this is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If we who have gotten married or are thinking about married never thought about this, we've missed it. Yeah, this is serious. You don't just kind of roll into it. Jesus' reply, who's he speaking of in verses 11 and 12? See that? Some say, not everyone can accept this saying, that he's talking about what the disciples just said about it's better not to marry. Is that what he's saying? Could be. He talks about eunuchs, meaning someone who's not sexually able to have relations. Some people are born that way, he says. Some people are castrated in that day and made to be a eunuch and a servant. Some people, he says, make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, meaning, by the grace of God, I have the gift of singleness. This church loves singles. This church loves widows. This church loves those who have been divorced. This church loves those who are married. We don't segment it or kind of divide into groups. If you have the gift for singleness, this church wants to be a place where you can fan and deflame that gift. If you say there's no way, I can't, then God, perhaps, is not calling you to the gift of singleness and will pray with you and for you for God to provide a godly spouse. We'll pray that you will be the godly spouse for that person. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Married and single, do you interact together? It's important as a church to do that. Married, welcome single people over. Single, welcome married people over. Vice versa, that's a good thing. That's true, all that, verse 12. Or is Jesus saying, not everyone can accept this word, he's talking about marriage. Not divorce, but marriage. Not as the princess bride says marriage, but as Jesus says, marriage. The disciples here are saying, Jesus is calling me to live with one woman for the rest of my life? Whoa! Whoa! As long as we both shall live? Yeah. That's crazy, they're saying. It would be better not to be married. C.S. Lewis. Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage between one man and one woman with complete faithfulness to your spouse or total abstinence. Now that this is so difficult and contrary to our instincts, he says means that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as fallen sinners is wrong. One or the other. You can't have it both ways. Lewis says, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct that has gone wrong. Beloved, 
Human marriage is a picture of Christ and his love for the church. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't lose heart. Keep on keeping on. Grounded in the love of Jesus and focused on the consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That day when Jesus returns, that day when there's a new heaven and a new earth, that, that day when the marriage supper is consummated, when we are with our glorious husband forever, earthly marriage is temporary. You and I won't be married to our spouses in heaven. We'll be perfectly united to Jesus, who loves us, who gave himself for us. The first husband, Adam, failed. Every husband and wife has failed to love perfectly. But the last Adam, our perfect husband Jesus didn't. He did not let his bride down. He hasn't. He won't. Let us love him for that. He will never forsake us. He loves his bride. Let us rejoice, Emmaus wrote, and give God the glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.